0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast. We have something a little bit different for you today. We have two topics that we're going to cover, and they are going to be magically revealed to actually be related, even though that will not be obvious at first glance. Amanda's joining me. Hey there. And we have two clips that we're going to play that are going to kick off conversations and, and we'll tie it all together. I think it's going to be fun. So we're starting off with a clip from a show called Arm and a Leg, which was created entirely to focus on the cost of healthcare in the United States. And uh, naturally they have pivoted to focus on the effects of the coronavirus on our healthcare system. And I heard this uh, episode that uh, I'm going to play a clip from and it highlighted an aspect of our healthcare system and came at it from a a brand new angle, which does not happen very often. So let's hear that, and then we will discuss afterward.
1: A couple weeks ago, someone tagged the show and retweeted part of a thread from a Ryan Gamlin, MD. It turns out, before going to med school, Ryan spent about 10 years on the business side of healthcare, working with insurance companies. And in the thread, he had a story that tied together what he saw in his business days with what he's seeing now. Here's how Ryan's thread starts. This is him reading.
2: If you ever retweet something of mine, please make it from this thread.
1: The first few tweets say how he'd seen from the inside how much the profit motive has taken over healthcare. Insurance, for-profit hospitals, investment companies buying up physician groups.
2: If healthcare dollars were water, we'd willingly be sending it through a Byzantine aqueduct that has high evaporation and moves water uphill. Yeah,
1: that's a good metaphor. And then he tells this story. Ryan's an anesthesiology resident, and during one of the big California wildfires last year, Saddle Ridge, he was working in a county hospital right in the fire's path.
2: I was urgently making my way through police and fire cordon checkpoints with my hospital badge to get to the hospital building. And I could see the wall of flame driving in, and I could see the wall of flame from the anesthesiology office. But still, I was not afraid, right? I said, they'll never let the hospital burn. But hours later, an announcement came overhead. It said the fire hydrants had run dry. The hospital was shelter in place, and I was scared. But do you know what happened? Over the next hour, fire trucks poured in, and surrounded the hospital. City, county, park service, forest service, BLM, new trucks, old trucks, unmarked trucks. They arrived to protect the hospital quickly and so effectively. As I drove home later that day through the protective ring of equipment, I realized a fundamental difference between public safety and healthcare. Public safety is built on latent capacity. We pay for people and equipment to stand idle over-prepared for emergencies.
1: In contrast, he says, healthcare has produced its profits by getting more and more efficiency from frontline workers.
2: Harder work, more patients to care for, more paperwork, more complexity. We've left no latent capacity in healthcare. Everyone was working at their maximum.
1: Was, that is, was already for COVID-19.
2: And some part of the tragedy that's now unfolding in this country is because of that because we let healthcare become a business and because businesses don't keep 100 extra fire trucks around their crews trained and ready just in case this latent capacity is the role of a functioning societal safety net and we sold ours to the highest bidder
1: here's a bit of my conversation with ryan he's doing his residency at a hospital in la and they say to make sure we note he is not speaking for them just for himself. Okay, check. When I talked with him last week, he had just come off a 24-hour on-call shift. He said it was scary. He told me about a conversation he'd had with a senior colleague the night before.
2: You know, he's had a long career, this guy, and he's very good at what he does. And he said, I never thought I was going to leave work wondering if going to work that day caused me to die.
1: So Ryan and this colleague are anesthesiologists, right? And it turns out, In lots of hospitals, anesthesiologists are among the folks with the most practice doing something that is during a pandemic that means lots of folks need to get put on ventilators. Suddenly a crucial everyday and dangerous procedure, sticking tubes down people's airways, because it turns out.
2: The single best way to generate a huge plume of active virus, uh, as best as we understand it, is to is to intubate someone.
1: Ryan knows that being in Los Angeles means he is not as exposed as healthcare workers in places where there's lots more cases like New York. And still, it's scary. It's been scary. He was scared when he sat down and wrote those tweets.
2: It felt like a fire with nobody to call, right? And I kept looking every day at what was going on and talking to colleagues in New York and Boston and realizing the proverbial fire department just wasn't coming. Yeah. And I was sick of feeling that way.
1: Ryan doesn't like it when people call healthcare workers heroes. This is not the kind of heroism the people he knows signed up for. The work is hard enough. Do people also have to put their lives at risk to do it because they can't get protective equipment? Ryan knows how much money there is in healthcare. He has been on that side of the business and he knows we've got the money to do this better. We are spending that money on healthcare trillions of dollars a year. Ryan's got his eye on it. He says he was just looking at an earnings report for a company he used to work with. That one company made more than a billion dollars in profit in three months.
2: The system is perfectly designed to get the results that it does. You know, I could tell you precisely how many times I sat in a meeting and heard the question, you know, what will this do for patients? And the answer is zero. Zero times.
1: Ryan made a change in his life, of course. He dropped out of that world, went to med school. And I asked him how he thinks this experience, this pandemic, might change his work, his perspective. He answered, as a doctor.
2: It's funny, I can recall vividly during medical school, on an exam, being asked a question about um, chemical weapons, right? And very specific, I mean, super down in the weeds, sciencey stuff about the way chemical weapons acted on a cellular level. And I sat there and I thought, man, is there nothing better this professor had to ask me about than chemical weapons? I got to tell you, I think about that exam question all the time now.
1: Ryan says at the time he thought chemical weapons were something he would never encounter as a doctor. And now he imagines the professor who wrote that question had been in a situation, maybe a war in the Middle East, where chemical weapons were actually in play, where being a good doctor meant You had to know how chemical weapons work because you might very well have to try and save somebody who'd been exposed. And Ryan thinks about how what he's learning now on the job, disaster medicine, highly communicable diseases, might have seemed obscure and dull when he was in med school. And how from now on, he's going to think of them as basic essentials in any doctor's toolkit.
0: This ad is a warning. Our democracy is under attack from the U.S. Supreme Court. In the middle of a deadly global pandemic, people across Wisconsin were planning on voting absentee to keep themselves and their families safe. But the night before the election, five Republican justices on the Supreme Court told thousands of people they would have to choose between risking their lives and forfeiting their right to vote. The Supreme Court favoring Republican interests over our democracy is nothing new. They gutted the Voting Rights Act. They invited billionaires and corporations to spend and unlimited amounts Trying to influence elections They gave a green light To gerrymandering Voter ID laws And voter roll purges now, a progressive movement is rising up to fight back, because it's quite possible the Wisconsin case won't be the last 2020 showdown over voting rights to be settled in the courts, and we simply can't trust this court to put aside partisan views and protect people's right to vote. Our courts are becoming too political, and it's time to say enough. Learn more about how you can join the fight by visiting demandjustice.org best. That's demandjustice.org best. I genuinely thought that I knew the vast majority of the problems with a for-profit healthcare system. And maybe that's true. Maybe I know the vast majority. But if I if I ever uh, allowed myself to think, I know all the problems, this clip laid bare how false that was and, and how false that I'm sure uh, will continue to be. Th- there are more problems than we have the ability to foresee. Oh, yeah. And, and and so what it makes me think of is the traditional stuff, like what do I know about our system? What am I comfortable talking about the problems with our system and, and how uh, injecting a profit motive into healthcare puts not, not even bureaucrats but uh, em- employees of a private company who have financial pressures and profit pressures put on them to deny care – Whenever possible, it puts that kind of a person between you and your doctor.
3: Yeah, that's
0: a classic example, and that should, to me that should be enough, yeah. right? <laughs> it <laughs> like, should be like th- th- that's an, If if uh, if you fear death panels, how in the world do you not fear a profit motivated death panel that exists in your insurance company? Yeah. So so that that's the really old school classic example of what's wrong with our healthcare system. And, you know, and there I could list a dozen others, but it just never occurred to me that a pandemic would come along and reveal an entirely brand new problem. But Amanda's here with me and she has perfect a- examples. <laughs>
3: <laughs> from, of the, from- of the stuff that we that we were already concerned about. Um I happen to have a rare disease and which is called in America a pre-existing condition. <laughs> and um it, and it has given me some unfortunate insights into our system for the last I mean, I've had it for like 15 years. And um the initial situation that kind of came to light for me was just, you know, purely the cost. I, you know, had a good job with good insurance, but I was still paying through the nose for regular appointments and medications and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, it was, it was. Killing me. Like it was just like constant, it was like death by a thousand cuts kind of thing. Like every time you talk to a doctor, go to a doctor, get a, go to a pharmacy, whatever, you're getting $150 here, thousand dollars here, et cetera, et cetera. And it was, it was painful, um, to say the least, especially as I was just starting out in my career and like, wasn't making, you know, great money and, uh, trying to live in an expensive city. So that was kind of the first element. And then later. Um, I realized it took me a few years, but I you know, started thinking about leaving the company I was with. I'd been there for a long time. And then I was like, oh, wait, I can't leave. I like what if I don't get health insurance the next round? Because this is pre-ACA and there was no protection for someone like me. And so I stayed at my company years longer than I would have. And Jay kindly coined what I was as a healthcare hostage, <laughs> just staying at a job against your will and um, even if it kills your soul, just to make sure you have uh, decent health insurance. And that was That was pretty awful, but, um, I lucked out that the ACA went into effect, you know, a year or two after I was really about to crack and, um, allowed me to escape. Um, because I was no longer, you know, seen as a, well, I probably was seen as a liability, but they couldn't tell me that I was. (laughs) They couldn't deny me coverage for it. Um, and so that's, you know, I've been living in this new world of, the ACA, but I'm still getting nickeled and dimed and my costs are still going up. And so we obviously need to go to the next level, which would be some sort of medical uh, Medicare for all system. But I had a really interesting experience last spring where I started a new medication and it was a super expensive medication. And I was a little worried for a while, like, oh, man, I don't even know if my insurance and I'd like pay a lot of money to have like good insurance to try to help even out these costs. And I was really worried. I thought, even though I have paid for the high caliber plan, like what if they don't actually cover all of this? Because a lot of what I take is off label, meaning it's not approved, FDA approved for my condition, which means costs go crazy high sometimes. And so I remember talking to this woman who, she wasn't from the health insurance company. She was actually from the pharmaceutical company that makes my drug. And she called me and just kind of like give me the rundown and like, you know, here's the things you need to like look out for and side effects and whatnot. And then she was like, and it turns out you have really great insurance. So we're going to cover it. We're going to cover all of it. And I was like, oh my God, did I win a trip to Bermuda? Like what on earth, what kind of reaction is this? And like, what does this woman have to say to other people when they don't have good insurance that's going to cover it? Um, And like, Is she just so freaking excited that she can tell someone some good news? That she's like literally acting like a sweepstakes, uh, (laughs) you know, telemarketer. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean,
0: people people uh, fearmonger about other healthcare systems by saying that other countries have to ration care yeah and that's why we couldn't ever possibly do that here Mm. because we wouldn't dare ration care americans wouldn't stand for that but of course we do ration of course we ration it by the ability to pay
3: yeah because you know that the person she called up and said hey i'm really sorry your insurance is not going to cover this or it's only going to cover a small fraction was like then i can't take it and that was the end of that conversation so those situations happen all the time.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So so no offense, but your story is sort of dime a dozen. <laughs>
3: That's right. Like just, I know. I mean, I'm, I'm run of the mill. <laughs> yeah.
0: I know you like to think of yourself. Look, as, I'm an as, all
3: American girl. Okay. I don't. I don't <laughs> know if you understand how basic I am.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you like to think of yourself as, as a beautiful snowflake, but it turns out <laughs> there's a billion people like you, right? right. And, or at least a million. And uh, yeah. And and so those are the stories we're used to and again they should be horrifying enough to make us think maybe we could do things better and now a pandemic comes along and reminds us that all the money we are spending that is supposed to be able to fund the most expensive health care in the world still leaves us not just with uh, healthcare rationing which we have but also lacks capacity mm-hmm. that is an amazing mm-hmm. insight and something that never gets talked about there there are a million problems with a profit-driven system but the drive for efficiency is
3: yeah, running it like a business like a super lean you know six sigma <laughs> business
0: yeah it, it, it's because Advocates for single payer or or some other version of universal healthcare focus so much on the benefits to people,
3: mm-hmm.
0: we tend to not think about the the downsides of uh having a a, a highly efficient healthcare system in terms of uh you know, c- cutting what a business person sees as waste and what maybe a bureaucrat would see as preparedness.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, this made me think this clip made me think about you know what other elements of our system um you know are affected by this kind of mindset and really at, at on a big general scale, Americans don't do preventative care very well, and so you know, I feel like only in the last few years have insurance companies started saying like we'll totally cover that mammogram, we'll totally cover that screening, we'll totally cover that like annual whatever is you know uh recommended type thing. Um, That that's like more of a recent thing. We have not been doing preventative care. And even still, we're they're not covering uh, enough preventative care. And it turns out that, of course, people who are sick and have to go to the hospital when they're desperately sick end up being more profitable for the system as a whole and i don't think there's someone in a room somewhere like calculating all this out and like trying to make sure that people don't get preventative coverage so twiddling we all make their money mustache. right twiggling their, their mustache but that's just the result that's what happens people you know don't get screened don't get blood tests don't do this don't do that because they can't afford it and their insurance doesn't cover it they get sick, they, you know, end up with diabetes, but they didn't know they have it and they have to be rushed to the emergency room and, you know, given all of this medicine and, and supported, you know, in uh, hospitals, et cetera. And, and then they get a huge giant bill. So that works out for people who are obsessed with the bottom line. And it sucks that that is the way we look at everything.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and just one, one last thing on the cost of healthcare, Again, we usually focus on incredibly high costs. We focus on people uh, having a fear of getting a big bill. But behavioral economists, behavioral psychologists will tell you that the difference between free and a small amount of money makes a huge difference in people's behavior. Mm. If you charge someone nothing for something – they are very likely to take you up on that offer. If you charge them something incredibly small, like a $25 copay... Mm -hmm. That is a huge disincentive.
3: Yeah, because and, it's not their only copay, you know, that month either, you know, mind you, people who have regular issues need to go in for checkups and whatnot on a consistent basis are like, how many times am I going to pay the $25 copay, uh, copay this month? You know, it's,
0: <laughs> that, I mean, that, that certainly compounds it, but, but my argument is yeah, even, even if it's just yeah, one, right? For, for a person who can't make a $400 emergency payment, mm-hmm. $25 is a lot of money. Yeah. And, yeah. but to, to, pull back even further for someone for whom $25 is not that big of a deal mm-hmm. it is still a disincentive yeah. to go and get preventative care and they know it they know that people act this way mm-hmm. which is why copays exist right. it is intended make to you be think
3: twice <laughs> it, it's intended
0: to make you think twice about getting care that may or may not be necessary and hey why don't you just hold off on that um to, so it, it creates this financial disincentive to care, so that we can keep our medical system at this max capacity while keeping it, you know, efficient and and cut down to the minimum. So our system, as you just heard in that clip, is you know or was already stretched to the maximum. Mm-hmm. Doctors already were rushing from patient to patient to patient, right. and so we were we were at the maximum. And we have tens of millions of people without insurance yeah. and tens of millions more who have insurance but don't go get regular mm-hmm. checkups just because they don't want to pay the $25. Mm-hmm. And, and and this is exactly the kind of preventative care that could make all of our health care less expensive because it would catch problems earlier.
3: Mm-hmm. And and the last note on this, I, I I think that we mistakenly think about America as a country of healthy people. And maybe by comparison to some other places, like maybe that is true, but so, you know, I, I have a rare disease, so I know a lot of stats about people with rare diseases. 30 million Americans have a rare disease. 30 million, okay? And that's not including people who have heart disease, preexisting issues with their lungs, people who have diabetes. Um, I mean, I could go on and on and on, right? So we think of ourselves as healthy, but really, everyone is being propped up. They have conditions. They have illnesses. They have what we called pre-existing conditions, right? But they are being propped up. So then you, you had a pandemic on top of all of that. And I love there's all this conversation about, oh, healthy people, healthy people can go out and do things. Do you know, I would love to see, like, what is the actual percentage of our country that are quote unquote the healthy people who can go out and do things? Everyone, I, I am in my thirties. I'm like a, you know, other than my condition, a pretty healthy person. Everyone I know has something. Everyone I know. <laughs> so I, I just can't really comprehend I, I <laughs> this do- idea that we're all. You know, doing great and our system can't possibly be overwhelmed because we're America. We're the healthiest in the world. Yeah,
0: I I think what those conservative politicians mean is people who think of themselves as healthy. Right. Which is sort of along the lines of the people who think of themselves as future millionaires. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're we're pretty much all in that camp in America. Which brings us to our next clip, which is going to sound very different but we're going to explain why it's, it's very similar. We, uh, I, I do think that I'm going to address in more detail the anti, uh, stay at home order protests. I'm going to cover that in a little bit more detail. But this clip is one that I, I, initially I didn't think I was going to use. It's, it's an interview with a conservative advocate of those protests being questioned. And, and I thought, eh, that, you know, that's not great content for a show about uh, that topic directly, but I think it's gonna tie in nicely here. So uh, let's pivot, hear this conversation, and uh, come back afterward.
4: We start with a movement of people who think they can protect themselves. They're demanding stay-at-home restrictions be scaled back, even as health experts say, that could put more people at risk. A coalition of Republican governors from six southern states is working to lift restrictions across the southeast. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has been leading the pack and admits there are risks.
5: Now, we will say that when we have more people moving around, we're probably going to have to see our cases continue to go up.
4: Kemp says Georgia will be able to handle any increases in cases, but Dr. Anthony Fauci isn't so sure. The director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases says reopening the states too early could backfire. More tests are needed to make sure people who don't realize they're sick aren't spreading the disease. And a Reuters poll found that 72 percent of Americans agree. They think the stay at home orders should remain in place until health officials say it's safe to lift them. But a vocal minority has a different opinion. In Michigan, protesters got in their cars to shut down streets around the Capitol. They demanded that the stay at home orders be lifted and the economy reopened. President Trump has added fuel to the fire with tweets like Liberate Michigan and Liberate Minnesota. Protests have spread to several states, including Indiana, Texas, Colorado, California, and this last week in Pennsylvania.
5: What's up, Pennsylvania? We can have a normal where we aren't locked in our homes like prisoners.
4: That's Pennsylvania State Representative Aaron Bernstein. He helped organize a protest and is on the line with me now. Thanks so much for joining me.
5: Al, thanks so much for having me on. Great opportunity to talk about some of the things happening here in the Commonwealth.
4: So tell me uh, what it was like at at the protest. What did you see?
5: Well, basically what I saw was a group of people that were coming together to petition their government about something that they're very passionate about. Uh,
4: In your speech in front of the Capitol, you said that you're concerned about both livelihoods and our freedoms that are in jeopardy. Can you explain what freedoms you believe are in jeopardy?
5: One of the things that this country was founded on was the ability for people to go and do hard work and pull themselves up by the bootstraps and uh, work hard, advance their life, provide for their families, and having that independence. While practicing CDC guidelines, you know, washing their hands, doing those types of things in order to remain as safe as possible.
4: It seems like you support all the recommendations of the CDC to social distance and avoid large gatherings. But at the same time, I've seen pictures of the protests at the Capitol, and a lot of people had no mask whatsoever. They were standing shoulder to shoulder in a large crowd. You said that you trust people to follow the proper protocols, but they weren't even doing that at the protest.
5: You know, I trust people to do what's best for them. At the end of the day, you're going to rely on a forceful government to mandate what people do, or you can trust individuals. if I were to guess, I'd say 50-50 of of those people had masks on, um, you know, of of the entire thing. You know, those are just off-the-cuff numbers, but that's what I viewed.
4: I hear what you're saying, but We clearly see that people aren't following the precautions. We could see it in the video uh, from the protests that you spoke at. You know, a virus doesn't really care about personal responsibility. A virus spreads. And we know that the coronavirus is highly contagious. At least 44,000 Americans have died from it. Probably higher numbers. So are we trading off people's health and lives for the sake of the economy?
5: There are risks. But the point that we're talking about is this. Are we going to shut down the entire United States of America until that virus is no longer in existence at all? And and I understand that there are literally those that believe that that's the best way to go. I don't. Uh, You know, I think that ultimately people have to maintain personal responsibility. And back to my original point of I trust the American people to make decisions that are best for them.
4: Governor Wolf uh, vetoed a bill you supported to reopen the economy. He said that reopening tens of thousands of businesses too early will only increase the spread of the virus, place more lives at risk, increase death tolls, and extend the length of the economic hardship created by the pandemic. Do you think he has a point here?
5: We have civil conversations and civil disagreements. I'm the first one to say that while I disagree with Governor Wolf's position on this, I'm not one of those people that's saying Tom Wolfe is trying to wreck the Pennsylvania economy. He's trying to ruin things. That's not true. We just have a firm difference of opinion on how this situation could be handled. And I think that what has happened in this situation in Pennsylvania and several other states across this country is they've taken a hatchet rather than a scalpel to the situation.
4: I'm in California right now. What California has done, the restrictions of stay-at-home orders, if we hadn't done that, the projections of what would have happened here would have been completely overwhelming.
5: Yeah, I'm not saying what was done in those regards in order to understand, in order to initially address the situation was wrong. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about today moving forward.
4: Why move forward today, though, if if you feel like the restrictions that were put in place a, a month or two ago... Uh, We're fine. But now moving forward today, what has changed for you that makes you feel like we we can bring this down?
5: First and foremost is the education piece, that people understand how to keep themselves safe and they can take those actions on their own. The second thing is the fact that we have, in fact, flattened the curve and we have stockpiled PPE from manufacturing firms. Uh, Medical community is ready and able to, to work. So I think those things have happened and have occurred.
4: The experts say that personal responsibility alone is just not enough, that there needs to be more testing, at least triple what we're doing right now. Um, And contact tracing needs to be in full effect so we can figure out where the virus is going. We're nowhere near being able to do that right now. So if we ease the restrictions on it, we really risk new outbreaks happening, new hotspots popping up.
5: To me, this is not an all or nothing approach. And I think so many times the the general public says things are black and white. But a lot of times there's a lot of gray areas, especially as you're dealing with government issues.
4: Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick in Texas said that it's worth reopening the economy so his grandkids can thrive, even though it poses potentially fatal risk to Americans over 65. He said, if that's the exchange, I'm all in. More recently, he said there are more important things than living. Do you agree with him?
5: I think that's a poor choice of words. And, you know, I wouldn't even begin to know exactly what he was trying to get at or, or what he was saying. Um, what I do know is that for freedom, uh, just, you know, a couple of generations ago, 17, 18, 19 year old children stormed the beaches of Normandy, were, were shot at and knew that they weren't going to make it to preserve freedom. Are there things out there in the world that are more important than living? I think there are.
4: Uh, if the way you see this playing out actually happens and the restrictions are lifted are you willing to take responsibility if there's a surge in coronavirus cases and deaths
5: i mean I, i'm i'm responsible for everything i do and and people are responsible for the decisions they make and i have 62,000 constituents and i look at that as my 62,000 bosses and um you know ultimately they can make the decisions on whether i made the right choices or not
0: I don't know about anyone else, but I couldn't help but be reminded of the Zap-Branigan strategy from Futurama. It sounds like this is pretty much what the Republicans are going for.
3: One time you single-handedly defeated a horde of rampaging somethings in the something-something system. The killbots? A trifle. It was simply a matter of outsmarting them. Wow, I never would have thought of that. You see, killbots have a preset
5: kill limit. Knowing their weakness, I sent wave after wave of my own men at them until they reached their limit and shut down. Kiff, show them the medal I won.
4: Captain Branigan, we really need to talk to you about our mission.
5: Whatever it is, I'm willing to put wave after wave of men at your disposal. Right, men? You
1: suck!
0: So, as literally cartoonish as that position seems to be, you know, to advocate that... For the sake of whatever version of mythical freedom he believes in, we just need to throw wave after wave of people at this virus until it somehow goes away. And besides the the obvious, like I just have to point it out, the obvious straw man argument that he threw out there in the middle about, you know, as as if the... Alternate position to his is wait until the virus is completely, literally gone from the country, yeah. then we can open up. No one says that. No one thinks that. And
3: so... Yeah, even th- th- if we get a vaccine, it's not going away. Everyone understands this, like...
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so clearly, the only way he can support his own argument is to pretend that the other side is completely irrational. Right. That's not even... What I played this for, I wanted to use this as a jumping off point to discuss the unbelievably large and pervasive myth of individualism and the American perception of freedom, how Americans tend to think only of freedom from Mm -hmm. They think only of freedom from restrictions on their own life and movement and desires and any of those things. They think nothing whatsoever of the freedom to live, the freedom Mm -hmm. to be healthy, the freedom to not be unjustly exposed to a virus because of policies put in place by morons (laughs) who think that freedom is more important than living. When you can't actually have one without the other.
3: And really, isn't it money is more important <laughs> at the end of the day, but that's cloaked in this, you know.
0: Of course, that's what he individualism
3: means. Individualism bullshit. Of,
0: of course. And I, I mean, how offensive was that to compare average people who have not volunteered in any way to yeah, be to infected to by coronavirus? Get their
3: lives. Yeah.
0: And comparing them to. Volunteers in the military during World War Two, yeah,
3: fighting against Hitler <laughs> and the Axis. Like yeah, it, it's just such a ludicrous.
0: If 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 anything, literally, if anything, the the proper comparison is that we have all been drafted, mm-hmm. and our duty is to stay home. <laughs> That's that is right. that is That's literally right. the more accurate comparison yeah, yeah. for his. Because it's
3: the one thing we can do as normal people to, yeah, to help the situation.
0: Yeah, to make your sacrifice personal and social and societal mm-hmm. for the greater good, mm-hmm. for the benefit of the future. Like, of course, that is the
3: accurate yeah. comparison. And, and you know, we we talk a lot about the healthcare workers as heroes and like. Yes, in a certain vein, like, of course, but none of them decided to become nurses and doctors and were like, and I'm willing to give my life for it. That's not how that went. That's not in the Hippocratic Oath, like, (laughs) that is not... What is going down. And so whenever I hear these people talk about, you know, oh, but let individuals do what they want to do, blah, blah, blah. And I keep thinking to myself, that would be great if the impact only happened to the individual. If the individual was the only one who was uh, impacted by the virus, if they went out and lived their normal life and didn't stay home. But that is not the case because individualism is bullshit. Every time you do something, it is more likely than not that it is going to impact someone else in society. It's like the perfect example that your individual actions will harm people and they will harm the medical professionals in your community who did not sign up to give their lives.
0: And the flip side is also true. I just want to point out that every success you have, every business you build is built on the shoulders of people who stood on the shoulders of people who stood on the shoulders of people who stood on the necks of the Native Americans.
3: Right. To to,
0: to, to quote a classic Mm. uh, joke.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean – If you believe in a world where your individual actions are all that matter, of course, you may trick yourself into thinking that no one else will be affected. That is, of course, not the case. And it is so unbelievably ridiculous in a pandemic situation that you think your individual actions will not have an impact on someone else. Like, if we're going to talk about another, you know, other issues, maybe you could make that point, but not when we're talking about a contagious virus.
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, Amanda and I did a bonus episode recently in which we were discussing libertarians. I, I read a couple of articles on libertarianism, and and one of the genuinely interesting insights that I got about libertarianism from this little uh, uh, stint of research that I did is is their belief, sort of laid out in in fairly plain language. In not preparing for disaster. Yeah,
3: anti-preparedness.
0: <laughs> and their, their argument for it was that disasters are not the norm. So you shouldn't prepare for something that isn't the norm. And, and obviously they said, look, when something bad happens, you know, work against it, fight against it, do what it takes to overcome it in the moment. But generally speaking, we shouldn't be preparing for disaster or preparing to fail. We should prepare to succeed. We should prepare for things <laughs> to work out because in their belief structure, they think that's that's how you get ahead. That's how you become your best self. That's how society becomes its best self when it it plans for things to work out. And my takeaway from that was that to act in that mindset – to be the person who doesn't prepare for disaster, who lives in a society that does prepare for disaster, actually is probably a pretty decent recipe for success. Yeah, you you really they
3: benefit from everyone else' prepar- everyone else's preparedness.
0: Exactly, you you probably could get ahead in society if you're the one holding out and not helping. To prepare for when times turn bad mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, advocating against universal safety net systems yeah. so that other people can fall through the cracks <laughs> right. while you get yeah. further ahead.
3: But if you turned your vision into society, uh, that's not going to work out very well.
0: <laughs> yeah. And th- that is basically what they're advocating for. Let's not plan for disaster. I mean, we, we have the systemic you know, decades-long buildup of unpreparedness Mm -hmm. that has led us to this point. And now that we are in it, they are still advocating personal responsibility, Mm -hmm. individualism, Mm -hmm. do whatever you want, don't prepare for disaster, just hope that it works out for you. And if it works out really badly for someone else, well, then they should have tried harder. They Mm -hmm. should have protected themselves better.
3: Mm -hmm. I just I keep wondering, you know, I want them to name their family members who they are willing to sacrifice for their freedom. I want them I want to list who Who are you willing in your family? Like, who do you not love that much that you're just willing to be like, eh, if they died, it's cool.
0: You brought up something, you know, people were commenting terribly on the internet as, as people are wont to do, mm-hmm. trying to compare the number of people who have died of the coronavirus to the number of people who live on the planet.
3: Right. And Yeah, they thought they were being real snarky. Oh, yeah, you want to post about numbers? Let me show you some numbers. (laughs) 7 billion people live on the planet, and this tiny little fraction have died of coronavirus. I'm like, that we know of. (laughs) And there is a reason that the numbers look like, I don't know, I wouldn't even say, okay, I'm still pretty horrified at what has happened, um, as we all should be, but they the The whole idea that it's, everything's good, everything's cool. Well, we took action. Like, pe- the whole world is social distancing, for God's sakes. Like, in the places that aren't, that aren't taking some measure of precaution, they have hotspots, especially in the densely populated areas. So this idea that, oh, it's been a month and everything's totally fine, only a few hundred thousand people died, like... I- <laughs> I'm Just at a loss.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, and what it what this is a window into is people's inability to comprehend events happening outside their immediate scope. Right. That the person making the comment that only two hundred thousand people have died are obviously not related to any of those people. No, and absolutely, not. and that's why people who are yeah, family and they live members in a
3: white affluent community where they have the resources to stay at home and be you know safe. Right.
0: That that as well, but the the people who are family members of people who have died have to make the perverse statement that my family member is not a statistic. Mm -hmm. My family member was not just a number, Mm -hmm. and they have to tell that person's story. Yeah,
3: Yeah, this is why the New York Times is now doing stories of the people who died, like a giant obituary section, and reading it is gut-wrenching, gut-wrenching. Even for someone who knows that every single number in that tally is a real person with lives and, or life and family and contribution to society, et cetera, et cetera. Like reading it is, it just brings it home in a way you can't possibly imagine.
0: Yeah. I mean, even, even if no one you know is going to be affected by this personally, if you, if you have to take the selfish route, I would advocate against. Uh, acting in such a way that will lead to you personally living in a society that is horribly traumatized for the rest of your life.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Society is not going to be better off for having had hundreds of thousands of people die and for millions of people to have been personally affected Mm -hmm. by this. We're not going to have better mental health as a society Mm -hmm. having dealt with that.
3: And and think about that. That's going to happen – Despite our best efforts, despite our best efforts, lots of people are going to die and lots of people are going to be traumatized. Imagine if we open back up because all hail the economy, we must make money or life is not worth living. And then the real brunt of this virus hits like we have not even understood. We cannot even understand what that trauma would be like.
0: So, as I said at the beginning, we had two clips for you today. They sounded pretty different from one another, but they tie together in a way that I think many people can understand instinctually. but just to just to tie that bow. The dedication that Americans have to our cultural myths of uh, capitalism and profit and market-based solutions for everything, otherwise known as neoliberalism and a variety of other names, and our relatively unique uh, perspective on hyper-individualism are absolutely at the heart of the way we are dealing with this problem. And we are showing, we are demonstrating to the world that we are dealing with this worse yeah. Than everyone else. Absolutely. <laughs> so we try to demonstrate on a regular basis the problems with our system, not just to be critics and naysayers and to say America's terrible because we hate America. The point is to criticize the problems to try to bend the curve. Make and things better. To, to, to bend a very different curve in a very different way uh, and and make things better, to try to alter our cultural myths and, and change the way we think about society so that we don't get ourselves stuck in these sort of ruts.
3: Yeah. And, and again, like it is a myth. It is literally a story that has been told for generations. That is what a myth is. <laughs> it's a made up story that it kind of loosely represents an idea. And it's been told over and over and over again until people think that it's probably true and that is what we live in on a daily basis and those are that is the reason we make certain decisions and that is terrifying to me
0: yeah we, we've we've all grown up in a post cold war or or you know many of us grew up during the cold war we were only taught one version of economics mm-hmm. and we've all grown up in a post world war 2 era
1: mm-hmm.
0: where we for basically the same reason eschew any form of collectivism and uh, reinforce individualism because it ties in nicely with the myth of westward expansion and Mm -hmm. all those great individualistic pioneers, otherwise known as settler colonialists. And so we tell ourselves these stories, and then you get people like that politician who don't believe in science. They don't believe in taking advice from experts. They make strawman arguments to bolster their claims. And what do they have to say to defend their position? Freedom. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Whatever that means, what whatever version of mythical freedom he believes in, that's that's what's worth sending people to their deaths. To their deaths for. Mm-hmm.
3: Not my brand of freedom.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's very well put. And we don't even have to not talk about freedom. Americans love freedom. They're always going to talk about freedom. There's no uh, use trying to argue against freedom, and you don't have to. The kind of freedom that we believe in is about all of the forms of freedom that you could have if you weren't weighed down with the endless, mind-numbing decisions and stresses that come with living in a hyper capitalist market based economy where every aspect of your life, you have to read through dozens of uh, pages of documents that you agree to, (laughs) except, of course, you don't, which just means you lose your rights Mm -hmm. to corporations. Mm
3: -hmm. And a lot of times you don't have a choice. (laughs)
0: <laughs> a lot of times you don't have a choice because whatever you're signing up for is not really something optional yeah, in in you modern have to society.
3: Have it like health insurance in our world.
0: And and people, uh, I'm I'm thinking specifically of of the book The Nordic Theory of Everything and the author who immigrated to the U.S. from Finland, I believe. And she talked about how stressful it was. Yeah. She she uh, asked some of her coworkers how they knew that the health insurance plan that they were signing up for was actually going to cover what they needed. (laughs) And her coworkers laughed and said, oh, don't worry. None of us know if we're picking the right plan. We just just do our best and then hope for the best.
3: It's totally true. And as someone who deals with my health insurance a lot, and I've had the same kind of plan for a few years now, and I've dug into as many details as I can, I still don't know what's going to happen every time I go to the doctor and what kind of bill I'm going to get. Like... And I know what I'm talking about and dealing with.
0: <laughs> I, I, I just listened to an interview with a person who is a a healthcare expenses advocate mm-hmm. who is an expert at warning people about things such as, uh, you know, if, if you're going to a hospital to have uh, an, you know, something like an operation done, and you know for sure that the hospital and the doctor that you're going to see are in your network – You'd better also make sure that the anesthesiologist is in your network.
3: Every piece. I had that happen to me.
0: And she said that she was in that exact situation. Mm -hmm. And right up until the day of her operation, she could not get that information. Yeah. She is an expert at doing this and could not find out if her – anesthesiologist was going to send her a bill for $10,000.
3: Look, I go to a doctor, I go get MRIs for, to check in on my disease. And, um, when I get the results, I get two bills, one from the person who read my MRI, the radiologist, and one from my doctor who told me about what the radiologist said. And those two people are not necessarily in the same network. They're not in the same, you know, like they don't necessarily have anything to do with each other basically. (laughs) And that is, uh, that's shocking. But now, now that I know that I have to expect that like I have no control over it is, is the end result there. Like I cannot find out who's going to be the one to read it. Are they in my network, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. It's terrifying.
0: Yeah. That, that, is, that is not the version of freedom that I am ever going to be signing up for. And the fact is, as we have known for years from polls and as Bernie Sanders has really brought to light, we are in the vast majority. People like our version of freedom. Mm-hmm. They like it. But the right for decades has been good at advocating against it mm-hmm. using mostly lies.
3: Yeah. And and, it, and this mythical vision of what this country is and what it stands for.
0: So with that, I would say be part of helping to build a new version of American freedom. Don't argue against the policies of the right and, and against their version of freedom by by explaining what's wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Give people a new vision. Tell them what you actually want. The benefits De- of describe, a new vision. <laughs> describe the benefits of the version of freedom that you believe in. You can't take an idea away from people and leave them with nothing.
3: Yeah, the three-legged stool, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: You, you, you cannot take a leg away from a stool without replacing it with something else. Mm-hmm. People will actually cling more tenaciously to their ideas if you criticize them without explaining a, a better version, mm-hmm. a better explanation for why you are criticizing a, a given idea or, or, or a given theory. So be an active participant in advocating for something better by explaining the the great version of America that we could have if we could overcome the old, tired, worn-out myths that we've all grown up with. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening. You can leave us a message at 202-999-3991. If you have questions or comments you'd like to be uh, played on the show, or you can uh, record a voice memo and email that to us. I can be reached at J at bestofleft.com.
3: And I'm Amanda at bestofleft.com.
0: Thanks for listening. Wash your hands. Stay awesome.